Hello everyone. Welcome back to Danger on Delmarva. My name is Rhonda Jefferson and I'll be your host today as we explore the sometimes winding and dark paths that take us around the Delmarva Peninsula. In today's episode, I will be continuing to part two of the case of the state of Delaware versus Mary Ann Powell. If you've not listened to part one, it is really necessary to go back and listen to that before going on to part two, as it will give you all of the background about the crime and a limited background on those involved in the crime, as there really wasn't much printed about them individually. The case took place in 1904, so there really just was not a lot that I could find to you know, give personality information, um, background about where everybody was born, that type of thing. But knowing what was occurring, at least in the immediate time period before the murder of S.E. Albin, it will give you a better understanding. To give a very brief recap, Mary Ann Powell was accused of murdering Estelle, sometimes listed as Estella, or by her nickname Essie Albin. The motive would have been due to jealousy as Mrs. Powell was jealous of the affection that her husband, Alfred Powell, showed to the young woman. Where things really, really start being dark is the fact that Essie had come to live with the Powells at around the age of 14, though it was not specifically said why. There was no mention as to Essie's parents, only sisters. So just my thoughts were possibly both of the parents had passed away and the sisters were unable to care for her. So they asked a respectable family in the community to help take care of Essie. What the sisters probably didn't know at this point, as it had not yet occurred as far as getting any notoriety, but Mrs. Powell would be fined and have any foster children in her home taken away at one point because of cruelty. Essie would have been in the home at this time, but there's never any mention of a formal foster parent arrangement or formal adoption. So that could have been the way around that. Again, some of this is just kind of conjecture based on the fact that not everything was laid out and explained. We just kind of had to deduce certain things. Before I get too much into the story, I just want to go through a couple of different things. One is I will leave a link to the other podcast that I have named Mystifyingly Missing True Crime and Thought-Provoking Events. It covers pretty much the same topics, but on a broader geographical scale. Also, I will be combining at least the Facebook and Instagram pages for both podcasts. It just makes it easier to communicate the different episodes as they come out, you know, to make sure that I'm following all the same people and that each episode really gets um, the same, I guess you would say, listenership or listeners. I admit that I do not use social media a great deal, so I'm hoping by combining the two, it will kind of get me into the, the ebbs and flows of doing social media. 
All of my sources will be linked in the description of the episode. Many of the sources came from newspaper articles that were contemporary to the time. So I will have the link to the newspaper.com, I'm sorry, newspapers.com webpage, but that is behind a paywall. So unless you do have a subscription, you wouldn't be able to view the actual articles that I viewed, but I will leave the name of the newspaper and the date. So that way, if you do have access to different newspapers on different platforms, you will at least have the date and which newspaper it was to use as reference. I do also have a PayPal link in the description in case anybody um, would like to donate towards some of the subscriptions or paywalls that I would need to use to get some information regarding some of the cases that I cover. And lastly, this episode, as with many episodes on this podcast, will deal with some sensitive subjects. In this particular case, there is allusion to certain types of abuse towards some of the children, as well as physical abuse. So these can be triggering. I'm, you know, I want to make sure everybody knows what to expect in the episode, as well as there will be at least, again, allusions to the fact that the victim here may have used self-inflicted wounds. But we'll get into that when we look at the trial, which is about where we left off on the last episode. So let's pick up where we did just before um, the trial was about to take place. So that was kind of a good stopping point so that we could just pick it up immediately when the trial began. As the trial did begin, one of Essie's sisters, and Mrs. Alfred Williams, because we've established that sometimes, it was very hard to find a woman's name as she was referred to by her husband's name. Um, just kind of a sign of the times there. But Mrs. Williams did speak of times where her sister left the Powell household. Mr. Powell would actually bring um, Essie to her sister's home. The sister also spoke of a time where Essie showed her her arm and the sleeve had actually been torn from the clothing and the arm itself injured. Her sister asked why would she keep going back to the Powell home because there were a few times where Essie had left and come to stay with a sister. And the sister was concerned that Essie might be in danger from Mrs. Powell. Supposedly, given this conversation, Essie did say that she was afraid. But when Alfred Powell was around, Mrs. Powell would act more acceptable or you know, wouldn't treat her in such a manner as to be violent or abusive. So whenever Alfred was around, even though purportedly Marianne Powell was jealous of their relationship, she would act if not kindly, at least decently, towards Essie. Essie's sister also made note that Essie herself called Alfred Powell Uncle Al. Going towards yet another sister, there was a time when Mr. Powell took Essie back to one of the sisters and asked if they would now be able to take care of Essie. 
So even though her age was not given, it sounds like she would have still been pretty young and not able to make it comfortably on her own. Um, just to kind of reiterate a couple points from last episode, she was around 14 when she did come to live with the pals. And, you know, back then it was possible that you know, she did not finish school as a lot of people did not. And Alfred himself was not able to read, which was a concern for Mrs. Powell. But at the time where this case occurred, where Essie was murdered, she was 21 years old. So one third of her life she had spent living within the Powell household and was in the household during her formative years. So when Mr. Powell, um, he asked that Essie would go and stay with a different sister, a Mrs. Tomlinson. He let Mr. Tomlinson know that he would pay to have a cottage built on the Tomlinson property so that Essie could stay there. Um, he wanted Essie to be away from his wife, but he also wanted a nearby location so he could come visit Essie whenever it was convenient for him. But Mr. Tomlinson said no. He probably was not going to take any BS. He knew what Alfred was up to and wasn't going to allow the home to be built on his property for Alfred to be able to take advantage of his sister-in-law. Again, just kind of conjecture, but, you know, I can imagine one of my brother-in-laws or brothers, you know, if someone said the same thing to them, they would be like, oh, no, and not let him anywhere near the property to try to build something. I'm sure that's what Mr. Tomlinson was thinking as well. Another witness for the prosecution was a young boy named Reynolds Ray. Um, he had also once lived with the Pals, and I mentioned him briefly in the previous episode. Um, he was one of the children that had been taken away from the home previously when, you know, um, Mrs. Powell was fined for cruelty to the children and had children removed. Reynolds Ray was one of those kids. While some pieces of information or facts about this particular case are not solidly backed up, meaning there's no court documents to say exactly what occurred during that case that I could find. But this is the story that the young man had to tell. He stated that he had been beaten by Marianne Powell and in his words had been strung up by the rafter. So you know, definitely the state had enough information to remove the children from the home. He did continue to give more information about specifics. And, you know, this will get a little disturbing for, for some people to listen to. But this is what this young man lived through and what possibly Essie was having to deal with, as well as any of the children that may have been in her home. Um, so this is from a quote that he gave a newspaper. Quote, she got a lead line, meaning a long horse halter to my two wrists. She stripped all my clothes off and then held me up with an end of the rope through the rafter of the long kitchen. When my feet cleared the floor, she beat me with two apple tree branches. She said I had stolen, and this is where there was a little bit of a smudge on the print. I couldn't see what he had stolen. Now, Reynolds 
biological father actually ran into him while walking and saw that there were bruises on his son and that he was also limping. Raymond had been on the way to school, and at this point, that's when Mrs. Powell was turned in for the cruelty and abuse to her foster children. Now, of course, Alfred Powell denied any of this, denied that there was any wrongdoing, but Alfred Powell always continued to stand firmly behind his wife, no matter what, even when it meant that young children, or anybody for that matter, was being mistreated and harmed by his wife. As testimony continued, the defense was able to ask questions to make it seem as though there was no animosity or hard feelings between Essie, Albin, and Marianne Powell. A neighbor that had been a friend of Essie's said that she had never complained about Mrs. Powell. There were other neighbors who backed up this claim. Um, also, the fact that Essie had been living with them for seven years. To me, it almost makes it sound like she was more of a servant Um, not necessarily a foster child, but neighbors did give testimony that, yes, she worked there, but she never wanted for anything and was at times able to buy more expensive items such as hats, which would have been more of a vanity item, not necessarily a hat that was used for functions such as, you know, to keep snow out or to keep your head covered, but more as a fashion accessory. Now, earlier on, when going through some aspects of the crime, one of the original thoughts of the prosecution and what had been listed in the Baltimore Sun was that Marianne Powell was thought to have chased Essie around the yard and then into the home, and after injuring or killing her in another part of the house, she carried her up to the attic. The prosecution, though, did not use that case, which I think was pretty smart because a lot of people, myself included, would have a hard time believing that you know a woman would be able to carry another woman who was, in all essence, dead weight up two flights of stairs to get into the attic. So this is where the argument evolved into either Essie being lured up to the attic or them having a fight and meeting up in the attic eventually where the crime occurred and where Essie would later be found. As with many defense attorneys, Marianne Powell's attorneys put on a defense of saying that their client was not guilty and that they felt extremely confident that there would be an acquittal in the case. Another child who had lived in the Powell home was a young girl named Georgia Ford. She was 13 years old when she took the stand. Now, whether by coincidence or by plan, Georgia wore a red plaid dress, which was similar to the one that Essie had been wearing when she was killed. Just kind of wondering what the dress options were back then. You know, I don't know if that was just one of the more popular patterns or colors, and that's why Georgia happened to have that dress or whether the pals had bought, you know, a a large amount of material and each one of them made a dress, or what the exact circumstances may have been. But some do conjecture that the prosecution may have been trying to, you know, implant that image 
in the jury's mind that just as Essie, who they had seen pictures of, that they would draw that comparison to both young women being victims of the Powells, or at the very minimum, Mrs. Powell. Georgia was able to testify that Essie had actually left the Powell home three times. I know I had gone over two times, one with one sister, one with the other, um, but there had been also another time that she went back to one of the same sisters. Also, when shown pictures, Georgia verified the clothing that Essie had on the day of the murder, which is why I'm thinking it was more of a conscious decision to have it to have Georgia wear a similar dress. She was also able to testify about a relationship between Alfred Powell and Estella Albin. I use the term relationship very loosely, but he was her foster father, so there should have been no other relationship other than a fatherly concern. However, not only could she testify to the fact that it seemed like Essie and Alfred Powell were having a more intimate relationship, she could also see that Mrs. Powell would become extremely jealous. She had actually locked Essie into her, in her own room at one point until Alfred Powell got back at the end of the day. Mrs. Powell later in that day said she was feeling poorly, and that's when Alfred actually opened the door and allowed Essie to come out of her room. It was also known for Marion Powell to sometimes hit Essie so bad that she would knock her down. The defense attorney then cross-examined Georgia Ford, and he was able to also elicit some testimony that Essie was not one to just take the beating, that Essie would also fight back. In response to one of Mr. Ridgely's questions, Georgia responded that, no, she had never seen Marianne Powell try to push Essie out of the house. So given this response, it makes it seem as though the defense was trying to establish whether or not Mrs. Powell had this jealousy as a motive. Because if she was truly jealous, then the next step would be trying to get her out of the home. Um, that's the guess that most people would do if they suspected that their spouse was having a relationship under their roof, even though, again, using the term relationship very loosely as Essie was a child when she came to live with them. Another witness named Elmer Cooper was able to give testimony about how Essie was acting the day of the murder. Elmer had been working at a house nearby, the Powell Ranch, and so he did go past the home a few times that day and he said Essie was walking around the property. She would be singing while she was doing work. You know, she would walk to get water from the pump and just seemed like she was in a good mood. Um, you know, you always hear things like the day started out as any other. So, of course, Essie had no idea that by the end of this day, her life would have been taken by a woman who was supposed to love her. Mr. Cooper continued that... He did go back to the Powell house, um, you know, once he did get back from going into town, and that's when they found that Essie was dead. He testified that Mrs. Powell had told him, quote, I don't know why, but Essie went up and butchered herself, end quote. So he kind of su 
saw how things played out that day, that everything seemed fine with Essie. And by the end of the day, Mrs. Powell was saying that she had killed herself. And this just kind of leads back to, to another or to a discrepancy that I mentioned in the first episode. There were some places that stated that the body had been found on the 11th, which was about two days after she went missing. But there was also other testimony that seemed to make it so that Essie had been found the same day that she went missing. So this sounds more like, you know, it was the day that she went missing that Mr. Cooper is testifying about. Elmer Cooper said that he did see Essie in the attic that night. So in other words, if we're questioning about whether it was the 11th or the night, you know, Mr. Cooper said he saw her on the day that she was found. And by other testimony, that would have been Tuesday the night. And even though they don't always use dates, they do sometimes use the day of the week, meaning Mr. Cooper, as well as Ira Downs in the first episode. And I looked back through the calendars and Tuesday was the 9th. So while some reports said she was found on the 11th, it does seem more like she was found on the 9th. Adding to the timeline of the day was a man named Cornelius Saxton. And he had stopped by to speak with Mr. Powell that day, and it was around 2.30 when he did stop by. He spoke with Mrs. Powell, and she had stated that they could not find Essie. And there was even then suggestion there that since Mr. Powell was not at home and that Essie could not have been found, that they were maybe somewhere off together. While the trial had technically began on May 2nd, it didn't really go into full swing and you know, have testimony from different witnesses until May 3rd. Yet, by May 4th, the prosecution was done pretty much. Um, it had closed out its case by the morning of the 5th. It was now time for the defense to take over. One man named James Dickerson said that he had once had a conversation with Mrs. Powell, who had stated that she was having trouble with Essie and Alfred being caught in what was described as compromising positions, which we can all guess what that was. The defense tried to call his testimony into question, um, asking about him being charged with burglary while in Vermont. The reason why this was brought up is because he had a type of surety bond against him in that case. And so the defense in their cross-examination and trying to pretty much attack the witness's character, brought this up. But Mr. Dickerson testified that he was actually a material witness, and the bond was given to make sure that he would show up and testify. The equivalent of a blood splatter expert for that time period also gave testimony. And I phrase it that way because we know a lot more about blood splatter, directional flow, just so much more about blood and how it acts when there's impact from a certain object and, you know, what happens if, say, you know, a person is laying on some type of incline, you know, that type of thing. So in some ways, the testing that was done was a little archaic, you know, even the process of figuring out if it was human blood. They discussed 
actually injecting human blood into a rabbit, which I, I mean, I used to hear about that as a way for a pregnancy test ages and ages ago, but I guess they were able to test something with the blood by putting it into a rabbit. So poor little guy. But the main t testimony that he would be giving is about how the blood appeared on Mrs. Powell's clothing. To sum up what he said, and his name was Dr. Robin, he said that he found that by examining the clothing, it was blood that had come in to contact with the clothing while blood was still flowing from a human body. So what he meant was that he didn't see that there were any signs of clotting or congealing when the blood came in contact with her clothes. And, you know, if it had been a period of time, he would have found some clots showing on her clothing. So in, in other words, it's not as though she got the blood on her clothing by finding Essie hours and hours later and coming in contact with blood that had already started to dry when she found her. He also did say that it looked like there was some type of barrier between the clothing and the blood, such as an apron or another garment. So here I'm going to say I find this a little iffy because, okay, if blood had started to, you know, clot or congeal, then it, it necessarily wouldn't show that clot if the blood was on an undergarment. Going back to the first episode, there was blood found on her undergarment. And while her dress did not show any signs of a stain, it was being sent to a lab. So we also have to remember that the testing for that dress or anything else would have come days and days after Essie had already died. Since there were no visible blood marks or blood spatters on the dress she was wearing, I'm thinking that if any clots did come in contact with the dress itself, by the time it soaked through to the undergarments where there was more blood found, the clots wouldn't soak through. It would just be the blood. So this, this just kind of negates this whole argument that Mrs. Powell found her either very early on and didn't report it or as more likely what they're trying to get across is that Essie was alive when Mrs. Powell came in contact with her body, thence implying that Mrs. Powell killed her. So just kind of my own thoughts with that, because it it just doesn't seem to make sense that, you know, they would expect a clot to go through the outer layer of garments. It would stay there. And then since they couldn't see any blood at all, but found it on her undergarments, it sounds like she probably washed that dress as well. It was around this time as well that one of the judges decided to interject some personal feelings into the trial. He said that he did not think that it was proper for women to be in the courtroom. He said that the type of testimony that they were hearing and that would be given would be a place that women, quote, should shrink from it rather than gather to hear it, end quote. So he didn't think women should be in the courtroom because they wouldn't be able to stand hearing the testimony. 
you know, never mind the fact that it's a woman who stands accused, you know, he's saying that women shouldn't be hearing the testimony because they're not built for it, basically. So, yeah, huh. that's all I have to say about that one. So we will now get into the heart of the defense case. They produced a witness named Mrs. Kenny, again, by the last name there. And she stated that Essie Albin had once tried to poison Mrs. Powell. While they were visiting during a Christmas holiday, Essie said that she was going to poison the coffee and it wouldn't matter if the rest you know, of the family died as well. That's summing it up, but it was important for that particular testimony because Mrs. Kenny said that Essie would be putting it in the coffee, like the whole coffee pot, not just what Mrs. Powell was going to drink. Hence, opening up anybody who you know, was in the home who might have stopped by to possibly being poisoned. So that was a very big point that came up in this particular piece of testimony. Essie had then asked Mrs. Kenny not to tell anybody about the poison, and she didn't. So the prosecution really, really honed in on this. And they wanted detail about the events of that day because Mrs. Kenny's own brother, a Charles Wooders, was eating at the home that day and would have been drinking coffee. So the prosecution wanted to know why, if even if she basically didn't care about anybody else at that table that much, why would she allow her brother to sit down and drink coffee that someone had just said was poisoned. Also, detectives had spoken with Mrs. Kenny because as an acquaintance that was well known to the pals, she would have been someone they contacted to find out more about you know, the interactions uh, around the Powell household. During the course of events, never once did Mrs. Kenny mention this incident. And even though the victim, Essie, was the one who said that she was going to poison the coffee, most people would consider that a pretty big issue and would have brought it up to a detective, even if they hadn't brought it up earlier. Now we're going to be getting into probably the biggest bone of contention through the whole trial, the confession. The defense said that they tried multiple times to get a copy of the confession from the prosecution, which the prosecution is supposed to hand over evidence like that. There were questions over not only what Mrs. Powell supposedly said during the confession, but also as to whether or not the confession actually existed. There was no videotape or audio tape in that day, and it took one of the detectives writing down the details of the confession as the only record. First here, I'm going to go over the testimony that Mrs. Powell gave at trial. Going back to the beginning when they first met Essie, she said that one of the older sisters brought her to the house so that the Powells could help raise her. Um, she gave a description of finding Essie and her husband in, quote, an act between the girl and my husband, which prompted me to immediately take her back to my people. My husband asked my forgiveness and promised to do better, and five days later, the girl came back and promised to do better, end quote. So one 
I'm not sure what she meant by my people, but I did try to to find something on that, but I don't know if it was maybe a misquote or she meant something, but it didn't come across very clearly. But this statement does help corroborate the testimony of one of the sisters, you know, stating that she had gone to stay with them and then went back to the Powell home. But Mrs. Powell stated that this incident had taken place years earlier, and the prosecution also used this point to argue that there was no evidence or discussion that any type of act like this had occurred on the day of the murder, so the prosecution did not feel that anything that happened long ago was relevant. Going back to her testimony of what she did that day, um, she said she had just been working around the house pretty much as she normally does. Um, she looked through the doors that were open in the home, and she saw Essie was in the, the wash house. She was washing some of the laundry. And she said that Essie was staring at her and that she looked mad. Later in the course of doing, you know, her chores around the house, Mrs. Powell went up to the attic. And she said that while she was up there, she heard the door open and she turned around and looked and saw Essie standing there. Because the doors to the house and washroom or wash house were already reported to be open, I'm going to assume that she means it was the attic door that opened that caused her to turn around and look um, you know, and see Essie standing there. So from there, she says that Essie is the one who initiated the violence that day, that Essie had her right hand over her shoulder, and though Mrs. Powell could not see what she was holding, but she was holding something you know, with her right hand kind of you know, back like she was going to strike. She also then stated that with her other hand, so her left hand, she grabbed Mrs. Powell and said that she would choke her to death. So Mrs. Powell then summoned the courage to grab something from the attic, which happened to be in a crate of bottles that she had brought up, and she used that bottle to hit Essie over the head. As this was similar to a profession that Mrs. Powell had apparently made previously to James Dickerson, saying that she would knock Essie out, Mrs. Powell denied that. There were then three rebuttal witnesses called to the stand who said that James Dickerson was not reliable, that he couldn't be trusted. So that helped you know, for the defense to refute any evidence that Dickerson may have said that um, Marianne Powell would knock Essie out. Continuing on with Mrs. Powell's testimony, I guess during everything that happened, her hair had somehow come down, so she had time to pin her hair back up. But in the meantime, she also rolled over onto her right side. During that movement, Mrs. Powell said something said to her to get her knife. She had a knife that was in a pocket or part of her apron that she had brought up there. And so she's saying that in kind of a fight or flight response, even though they probably didn't use that terminology back then, she grabbed the knife to try to save herself. One of the documents that I was able to find from the actual case was an argument about the admissibility of a previous threat. 
And where this comes in is to try to determine if Mrs. Powell really had a concern for her life. This goes back to the poisoned coffee and about whether or not testimony on that would have been admissible. Because this was a murder case where someone would literally be fighting for their life, it was admissible as one of the lines from the argument said, in a trial for homicide. So in that case, since it would lead to the mindset of the accused, they admitted that testimony, even though as we heard with the prosecution, they did their best to refute pieces of that as well. So from this point, Essie has been hit in the head with this bottle. Mrs. Powell is claiming self-defense after hitting Essie with the bottle. I'm emphasizing that point because I'm going to give you some numbers, which is the very first thing I actually saw about this case and that the determination had originally been suicide. So she had been hit in the head. And as Dr. Um, James Wilson, who was a, had been a witness for the state, he did the autopsy on Essie that was performed on February 12th. And he said that he found 170 contused and inside wounds, I'm sorry, incised wounds upon the back of the head, scalp, face, throat, arms, hands, back and left leg, with the most severe wounds being described as the following. For the next pieces of information, I will be quoting directly um, about the wounds so that I don't miss anything that may be important. There were six irregular linear shaped cuts varying in length from two to four inches immediately over the incision that severed the large arteries and at the upper border of the throat. A series of linear-shaped incisions in the throat immediately below the main incision that severed the main arteries, veins, and nerves, extending from angle of left lower jaw to middle of throat, that is, to median line, in a line perpendicular to the chin, that is, to the point of the chin, making a denuded surface, being in a hacking condition, but passing through skin and superficial facial skin. One superficial, superficial cut to the right and downward from median line of neck, two inches in length, terminating just above the clavicle or the collarbone, but not passing through the skin. Below the main cut mentioned above that severed the windpipe, blood vessels, and nerves on the right side of the neck are as many as 10 gashes, making an irregular hacking, each gash being linear in shape and in the main parallel with the cut above mentioned, and likewise terminating with the main cut below the ear on the right side of the neck. And here he describes the worst of the injuries. Extending from angle of right to angle of left lower maxillary bone, that is, the incision began and terminated just above each of the points named. The incision is seven inches in length, severing the windpipe, jugular veins, and both carotid arteries, and all the tissues exposing the anterior surface of the spinal vertebrae, that is, the outer surface of the spine. That is what we call the anterior surface, 
in contradistinction of the back of the spine. It was cut through here, exposing the front part of the spinal column, and all of these vessels were cut here, leaving an unobstructive view of the vertebrae of this part of the neck. I'm going to stop at this point because it does just continue on explaining basically how deep and severe the cut was to Essie's throat. So the defense is using an argument of it was self-defense, but Essie was both hit over the head and had a very severe neck wound, and she could not do both. She could not have hit herself in the head, then given herself 170 wounds because she would have been unconscious. She could not have slit her throat and then hit her head and did the rest of the injuries as well because once she slit her throat, that would have been it. So in other words, the two biggest injuries, the hit to the head and the cut throat, they kind of cancel each other to the point that she could not have done both because one would have made her incapacitated. Now we will go over the confession that was supposedly given by Mrs. Powell while in custody. Referring back to the first episode, she had been left in solitary I'm sorry, solitary confinement basically, and had, on the other hand, been subjected to long periods of interrogation. So it was like going from one extreme to the other, back and forth. And since the state did not turn this over to the defense, I think as a modern jury or modern case, this would be a very big issue as you know, the defense did not have that information to either like verify or use to refute some of the other testimony given by the prosecution. All they would have is, let's just say she had confessed what she said she told the police. Do I think she confessed? Yes. I'm just looking at it more as a modern case, though, and knowing that this could have caused some major issues in not only arresting Mrs. Powell or keeping her in jail, but also then during the trial. So what she said happened that day is um, some of it's the same as what um, I said earlier, that she saw Essie through the washroom door that she grabbed some things and took them upstairs and heard someone coming up the steps and heard the door open. She turned around and she saw Essie coming in there. She asked Essie, I'm sorry, Essie what she wanted, but Mrs. Powell indicated she was still bending over, you know, getting things out of her basket or crate that had the bottles and things in there. Um, Mrs. Powell then said Essie stated something that she couldn't quite understand, and then she rushed up the steps and had a hand raised and rushed up to Mrs. Powell. During this time, Mrs. Powell was also trying to recreate the events of that day. So a man named Mr. Davis was standing in, and Mrs. Powell was really using the actions or doing the actions of Essie. She showed her hand raised, her right hand, kind of back above her head, behind her shoulder, just like you would expect to see someone 
if they were going to hit someone or start to beat something. Mrs. Powell grabbed a ketchup bottle to try to defend herself and hit her in the head. But even after doing that, she stated that Essie um, held her throat still tight and Mrs. Powell could not get Essie to break the hold even after hitting her in the head. She then hit her again and that's when Essie fell to the ground and Mrs. Powell fell with her. She then describes Essie still not you know, backing down, that even though they had both fallen, Mrs. Powell could not get away from Essie, so she hit her once again with the bottle, and while Mrs. Powell was trying to get up, um, which she was having difficulty doing because of having a long skirt, she said she had to get it from underneath of Essie. This kind of went back to my previous argument about how she probably couldn't carry Essie up the stairs in one of those dresses, you know, just, it was so long, I think she probably would have tripped. Not only the strength, you know, that it took as well. But when she was trying to get the skirts out from underneath of Essie, she managed to drop the bottle and realized she no longer had anything to defend herself with. Essie, at this point, was apparently still choking Mrs. Powell because before she could get away by gathering her skirts, Essie had attacked once again. Marianne Powell said that Essie was aware that her, her hand, her right hand, was injured, that she had bruised it while using scissors previously. So Essie was trying to fight her, but used, going towards the left hand because Essie knew that the left hand was stronger since the right hand was injured. Mrs. Powell then said that Essie grabbed her apron, which she had taken off earlier, and tried to stuff it in Mrs. Powell's mouth so that she would not be able to breathe. So remembering that she had a knife in her own pocket, Mrs. Powell brought out that knife that she was going to be using um, for her sewing. And once she got the knife, she says she got it open. Essie, of course, according to her testimony, tried to get the knife. And once she tried to get the knife, so she states for what may, may have seemed like minutes, but was probably just seconds, that they were still struggling, that Essie was trying to get the knife, and there was nothing at all that Mrs. Powell was able to do to get away from her. She still felt that Essie was trying to choke her and kill her, and she even points to her injured hand to the members of the jury to let them see that her hand did have, you know, injuries, that at this point she still wasn't able to close it properly after a couple of months had passed. And, you know, again, she's trying to use this as a way to prove that Essie had the upper hand, no pun intended, and that she had, you know, two working hands. Mrs. Powell said she knew that if she had dropped the knife or Essie got it, there would be nothing that she could do to defend herself. So, out of desperation, she cut Essie with the knife to save herself. After cutting her once, she pushed Essie off because they were still in the floor, and Mrs. Powell says that she had to crawl for a while, you know, because she had been choked for so long, her dress was covered in blood, and she was worried about what her husband 
would do. She didn't have any other dresses that she could wear, you know, because remember, people did not have the wardrobes like we have today. So it was kind of like she had to work with the dress that she had. Um, she had worn it throughout the winter. And remember, this took place in February, you know, but in Delaware, so it doesn't get usually frigid, frigid. It gets cold, but not, you know, Arctic frigid or anything like that. She said once she was able to stand up and got to the door, she had to lean up against the door, and that's how blood was able to get onto the door. Again, she indicates something about her hair, that her hair had been pulled down and that it was all disheveled. Still worrying about what to do with her dress, she still fixed her hair while worrying about what would happen to her since Essie was dead she decided to put the knife in Essie's hand and say that she had committed suicide. She then also tried to use a cloth to wipe the dress off as best as she could. The dress itself was dark, so it could have hidden you know, wet spots and stains better than something that would have been you know, very light colored. After she was able to make it down the stairs because it took her a while to feel steady enough on her feet to do so, she was able to fix lunch for a man staying there named Uncle Pat, doesn't give any more of a relationship, and another little boy who was staying there. So the events that Mrs. Powell depicted in her in-court testimony really does mirror what was stated during the confession. You know, there's maybe minor inconsistencies, but for the most part, they're very, very similar. The thing is, and what causes the judge's concern, is there's 170 cut wounds and bruises. Where do those come from? And the answer to that would determine what type of conviction she could be convicted of if she was convicted. The defense then called witnesses to testify to the character of Mrs. Powell. And it kind of backfired. There was a witness named Alice Hollinger, and she said that Mrs. Powell was known for peace and good order. However, she was you know, cross-examined, and the prosecution asked if Miss, Mrs. Hollinger had ever heard of Marianne Powell beating a little boy. Now, the defense objected at this point, was saying that it was not relevant. However, the prosecution was able to say, you know, this pertains to the general reputation of the defendant. So this has a right to be asked and be answered. So my observation on that too is, you know, in at least more modern cases, if something normally would not be admissible, yet an attorney actually brings it up to their client. So in other words, this defense attorney did not want things about the little boy that she abused to be brought into the case, yet he's the one who brought up her character. He opened the door, which is the phrase that you may hear used. Um, he opened the door to that line of questioning. And so going by that ideal, it would be admissible because if he's asking about the general reputation of the defendant, that's any type of reputation. And the fact that this was against a ward in her custody and Essie 
as a minor had been a ward in her custody, it is, to me at least, directly well relevant to how she treated people who lived with her. The defense also tried to object to testimony from Dr. Wilson about the throat being cut and that it had actually cut through the trachea. I don't understand because it didn't say what objection it was, just that he objected. And I wonder if this is the fact that it was originally labeled a suicide, maybe coming back to haunt the prosecution, but he was able to continue with the testimony as it does show the cause of death. In a rebuttal about the supposed poisoned coffee, um, Georgia Ford was recalled to the stand and to go over testimony from that particular day, and it would have been remembered as there were people visiting for the Christmas holiday, Georgia said that Mrs. Powell had been drinking coffee that day and had actually had two cups and had poured her very own coffee. She was not the only one who drank from that same coffee pot. Um, Essie herself actually drank from that, as well as the person who gave the original testimony, Mrs. Kenny, her brother. So there was direct witness testimony to say that the the coffee wasn't poisoned because Mrs. Powell would have you know, shown the impact or shown the symptoms of taking the poison if it truly had been. And why would Essie drink it if, you know, she knew it was poisoned? As the attorneys had rested each of their cases, Mrs. Mrs. Powell spent a very frightful night in jail and, of course, a very lonely night in jail. The sheriff reported that she cried for most of the night and that once she did actually get back to the court, she started to weep and mentioned that all of the the detectives that interviewed her were tall and muscular. While not saying the exact words, she was hinting that they were intimidating to her. And that's why she may have gone ahead and confessed because she was scared. This was not brought up during the actual trial, but this is something she said once she came back into the, um, the courtroom. The prosecution had done its best to try to point out inconsistencies. And also, the rule of law was on their side in regards to proof. At this point, everybody really believed that she had committed the crime. What it came down to was whether or not she would be convicted of first-degree murder down to manslaughter. Of course, there's never a way to 100% foretell what a jury may or may not do, but given all of the testimony, the blood, especially on the underclothes, um, as it had seeped into some of them, really, you know, it hammered home the idea that, yes, it had to be Mrs. Powell. There was no one else there to do it, and there is a large amount of blood on her clothing. In the judge's summary, he made it clear that it was up to the defense to prove self-defense. Also, he wanted to be clear about all of the different types of charges that she had or the individual types that she did have. He summarized for the jury that first-degree murder was murder that was done with premeditation or forethought. If Mrs. Powell was found guilty of first-degree murder, she could be sentenced to death. 
second degree murder is where it may have been done with what was called implied malice, which means you can conclude that it was acted upon because basically someone was really mad or hated the other person, but there was not any premeditation that they would kill the person that day. There was also no provocation to commit the act. Manslaughter is killing someone without malice. So, you know, some, you know, some examples of this might be you're, you know, arguing with a friend, you get mad, you push them, and what happens is you're actually near a staircase and they fall over the staircase and die. It is manslaughter because you committed an act to kill someone, but it was not done with any type of intention to injure or kill. It was just kind of a reaction at the time. Originally, there had been an option for third-degree murder, but that seems to have been taken out. And manslaughter had always been part of one of the charges. So, you know, the definition for third-degree murder kind of fell into manslaughter for me. So that might be why it was not addressed in the summary by the judge. The defense was probably banking on the self-defense angle working and in their own way had tried to bring up the character or morals of S.E. Albin. Though in statements made by the defense attorney, he did admit that Alfred Powell was to blame for a lot of what happened, including with his treatment of Essie. The defense said, quote, What manner of man is he anyhow? At an early age in her life, he seduced a little girl, Essie Albin, and branded her as an adulteress and planning in her mind a bitter and undue illegible hatred and the woman who, st who then stood in her way and 24 years had toiled for that farm. But a time will come when Alfred Powell, who is now skulking away from the scene of action, will have to give an account to the great judge. He is the person responsible for this affair, end quote. So he does call out Alfred Powell. He points out that Alfred Powell seduced a child. It was not a relationship in the sense that it's a mutual, respectful, loving relationship. To, to use the broadest meaning of the word relationship, it's an abusive, grooming, perverted relationship. It's something that Essie really had no experience to try to fight against. And she's been living in this home for years with Mrs. Powell blaming her for the quote-unquote affair when it was actually 100% Alfred's fault and Mrs. Powell should have been willing and able to fight for Essie and take care of her. So I almost wonder if this argument that the defense had made could actually backfire. Yes, I'm looking at this from a 2022 angle, but I really believe if there was one father on that jury, and I'm sure many of them were fathers, and they thought of their little girl being 14 and for whatever reason having to live with another person, they probably saw red literally when hearing what Alfred Powell was doing. Knowing that Essie probably felt like there was no escape and she was put through torment every day, I really think this play by the defense 
really backfired. I know if I'd been allowed to be on a jury then, you know, but as a woman who couldn't, I know that would stay with me. And the fact that Mrs. Powell made Essie more of a victim than she already was by not stepping in and trying to help her, but then also taking Essie's life. On May 9th, 1904, Mary Ann Powell was convicted of second-degree murder. That was life in prison as compared to the death penalty for first degree. The verdict was rendered in a little more than an hour. They were actually sent to deliberate on a Saturday at 5.15 p.m., and by 7 p.m., the attorneys had been notified to come back to the courthouse, and Powell's attorneys told her not to give up hope. Even the state's detectives showed sympathy towards her when her husband said, quote, Molly, I'm sorry, end quote. He's the only one I've ever heard refer to her as Molly, so it must be his nickname. And he seems to be acknowledging that it was his actions that put everything into place to lead to this tragedy. And as still is done today, almost immediately, and when I say immediately, I mean immediately, appeals were filed. By May 11th, and that would be a Monday, the jury return, returned the verdict on a Saturday. There was a witness who said that two of the jurors had stated before the trial began that they thought that Mrs. Powell was guilty. And the defense then wanted to have the verdict overruled because of this stating, you know, juror misconduct. Support, though, did rally around Mrs. Powell. Church, her church would send her flowers to try to lift her spirits. Later, Alfred Powell was charged with immorality. So that was actually a crime, immorality. And almost a year to the day after his wife went to trial, his jury came back as a hung jury. There were three days spent bickering and fighting over the charge, eight voted for a conviction and four for an acquittal. There was no other information that I could find regarding as to whether or not he had another trial. So basically this guy didn't face justice in any of the traditional ways. I'm just going to say that I hope that society did kind of treat him as an outcast because of what he did. You know, if he was doing that with Essie. It would be hard to believe that the other girls that came to live at the home, you know, weren't going through the same thing. So it's very disheartening that, you know, he wasn't convicted. But for that time period, I'm, I'm glad they at least tried, even though Essie wasn't there to, you know, see that someone was trying to charge him for what he had done. At least the prosecution did try. I just wish I knew what the the four people who are voting not guilty, what they were thinking, whether it was truly they didn't think he was guilty or they just didn't think that there was enough evidence. And no matter that Essie was in her 20s when this happened, she was still a child when she went to live with them. And so Alfred would have been able to you know, help mold her which the term now that's used is grooming, to you know, make her feel that they were in love because some of the descriptions 
from her friends, it did sound like, you know, she thought to some degree she was in love with him and he with her. We know that it's a perverted relationship. It's not something that is normal. It's not something that should ever be accepted. But at the time, there was really no one probably that Essie felt she could turn to. About three years after her sentence of life in jail, Mary Ann Powell was sent to the Newcastle County Workhouse. She had actually been staying at the county jail for that time, but since she was going to be a long-term prisoner, she was sent to the workhouse. They said that she became terrified when she saw the warden because even though he was described as kindly, his presence just brought a, quote, horrifying foreboding of the institution of which he was the head, end quote. So in other words, even if he himself was kind and benevolent, just the fact that he represented a workhouse would terrify anybody. He even though brought his wife with him to take her back to the workhouse so that his wife could help comfort her while they were traveling. A pardon was requested for Marianne Powell multiple times in 1906, 1915, and again in 1919, with the last stating that she had been a model prisoner and that she had killed Estella Albin out of provocation. All of these were denied. However, she was granted divorce either at the end of 1918 or the very beginning of 1919. At the age of 72, Marianne Powell was allowed parole it was a conditional parole with her being able to go to what the state would consider a suitable home. Given the fact that she was divorced from Alfred Powell, she did have limited options. However, I couldn't find if he actually kept her house or not, um, or what happened to the property where this occurred. Since it was hers before they got married, you know, it's not clear if she had to, say, sell it in order to pay for her defense or what actually happened to it. However, she did have friends who lived in the Wilmington area in Stanton, and they said that she could come live with them. In August of 1923, Marianne Powell was released to go to the home of her friend living in Wilmington after the state had determined that it was a good home for her to go live in. So yes, they had to approve the home as well, before she was released. On January 29th, 1924, so shortly after Marianne was released, Alfred M. Powell was found dead at the bottom of his stairs. It was deduced that after rising in the morning, the house was rather chilly and wrapped in a blanket, decided to try to go down the stairs, but tripped, breaking his neck in the fall. Neighbors and family had become concerned when they saw a lamp burning in a back room when it should not have been, and they were not able to contact Alfred Powell. Someone was finally able to climb through a window where they found him deceased. He did get to live a relatively long life, considering what he had done in the past. And, okay, to throw it in there, because I have to say it, he was not found guilty. Everybody is presumed innocent until proven guilty. But it, in my opinion, it seems like there is more than enough evidence to conclude that he was at least grooming one young girl that came to live with him. 
And again, that's what led to this tragedy. So while going through this murder case, I had tons of things that I wanted to say. First, there's an acknowledgement that a lot of the newspapers that I came across, they they wrote the stories more to sensationalize them rather than to, you know, provide information to, you know, honor Essie's life and show that she was the victim in this case. And that didn't always happen. There was judgment made towards everybody, but Essie being 14 years old when going to live at the home was a victim from the very beginning. While comparing different newspapers, um, they were mostly primarily um, from the Wilmington News Journal, where it may say either Evening Journal or Morning Journal. And, you know, some were a little more descriptive than others, but none of them really seems like it gave all of the information. The media seemed to focus more on her nerves of steel, you know, that until the very end, until she was about to hear sentence, that she stayed very stoic and strong, at least on the outside. Now, as far as having a balanced representation in the media, I would have to say overall it was pretty balanced. For the most part, they didn't cast too many aspersions towards one person or the other. However, there is some imbalance when you're looking at Essie. And we could kind of see that not only in the newspaper articles where it talks about, you know, an illicit affair or calling her an adulteress. No, you need, they needed to look at her as when she came to live with them, because that is really the age in which, you know, everything started to form. He started to kind of coach her and he led her down, you know, a very tragic path he was the one manipulating and using a 14-year-old girl. Again, he was not found guilty, innocent until proven guilty. This is my opinion. You know, and he may not have started at 14, but still, he was a father figure to her and he betrayed that and the mother figure betrayed her as well. The attorney, um defense attorney when he was talking about how vile Alfred Powell was basically, it still used some of those terms like adulteress when describing Essie. And I have to wonder about any other girls that were there. I also, I think about the sisters that even though there was no report of how old they were when Essie went to live with the pals, they most likely were still very young. And I think they did everything with the best of intentions of their sister going to a house where maybe she could learn a trade such as, you know, being a maid, some type of washer, you know, just something that she could do um, to help pay for room and board and help support herself, which is really hard to say about a 14-year-old because a 14-year-old should be supported by her family, which leads to the next point in that, we know it's not always possible now to have children stay with their parents all of the time. There, there are times when children have to be removed and there needs to be a good system in place to allow for fostering of, you know, that's child's care, help building their self-esteem and meeting their emotional needs. 
because it's not like they're they're just taking from a parent. Even if that parent abused them, that's still their parent. So they need to be in an environment that is very healthy and open, you know, that will address that individual child's needs. To the child that's taken away, you know, their parents are the only parents they've ever known. So even though looking at it from the outside, we know it's what's best for the child or children. Um, those children most likely will not be old enough to realize that. And so actually taking them away would be traumatic for them. While going through the older newspapers, I came across part of a story. I say part because it was a death notice of a prisoner who died. And that prisoner's name was Minnie Stewart. Minnie Stewart was also known as Minnie Collins and a man named Fred Stewart were arrested and pled guilty to manslaughter of beating their foster child to death. The, the undertaker, um, apparently, like nobody was called. The body went directly to the undertaker and he asked for the death certificate, which they were unable to provide. Um, they wanted her buried straight away, and she was a seven-year-old. Her name was Frances Crockett. Well, the undertaker became suspicious, and he did check her body for marks and found bruises, as well as she was called emaciated. So she had also been starved. That parallels to so many things today as well. So back in the 1920s, early 1900s, um, things, things were still happening like they are today. And it doesn't seem like we've really learned from anything. You know, we currently have better understanding of mental health issues that people may encounter. Um, we know of different types of support systems that people may need when it comes to raising a child, yet still here we are a hundred years after these cases and the exact same thing is happening. We hear of children, whether they're with foster parents or their biological parents, they're being beaten, starved, and killed. And you know, what's being done? Where, where is that child's voice or those children's voice for someone to stand up for them? You know, we can look back at the early cases where not just going back to the early 1900s, but, you know, basically all of the time mankind has been on the earth that, you know, there's just always been some people who have absolutely no heart, it seems like, and they're put in charge of a child, whether, you know, it's because they're that child's biological parent or relative or because they've applied for foster care or adoption. And I do want to make it clear, too, I know there are so many wonderful foster parents and adoptive parents who are there to support their children. And, you know, if people could recognize the qualities that they have and, you know, weed out those who are applying um, for foster care or adoption, you know, weed out those who don't have those positive qualities, you know, that's the reason for having 
social services. You know, some more recent examples of, you know, um, modern cases, you know, I'm thinking of the Hart family where, you know, parents adopted six children and while maybe at the beginning they might have had the best of intentions, but they ended up you know, really looking like they were using the children for attention, for social media likes, for also monetary gain as the state would give them a certain amount of money to care for the children when they were in foster care. And the exact rules around that vary by state, but you know about, about how much each person would get or how much money um, a person is paid for caring for a child. But yes, there are some people who do that. And then I think of Orrin and Orson West. They were taken from their biological family and adopted pretty quickly, you know, I would say by another family who had two biological children and two other adopted children. But then people just stopped seeing Orrin and Orson and the family moved, but they were never seen in the new town. So you know, law enforcement tends to believe at this point that they were killed. So why does this continue to happen? I, that's just a larger scale um, than really we have an opportunity to go in on this episode. But you know, this is something that I do want to explore further and you know, may at some point do a longer episode of just looking at the topic of protecting our children. And again, not just in foster care or adoptive adoption cases, but then also, you know, biological families where a child stays with them and it seems like the system fails. Looking at it from today's perspective, you know, we have you know, computers tracking databases where theoretically we should be able to, you know, check on children who might be at risk and follow up on reports back during um, Marianne Powell and Essie Albin, when that case occurred, there weren't all of those quote-unquote safeguards, you know, because they don't seem to be working as much now either. But for Essie, I really have to wonder if there were any safeguards at all. You know, was, was anybody looking at a family that, with a population that small in that town, people had to know that they had had children taken away. They had to know now that other children were living there. Even with Essie being an adult, there were still other children there. And it was ignored until the worst outcome imaginable came to be. Okay, I think I'm going to end it here because, you know, like I said, that just this whole topic could take up, you know, episodes on its own. For the next episode, I'll probably have a, a mini episode because there's a story I want to cover, but it's had the potential of being catastrophic and harming people. And while, yes, there was still an accident, thankfully nobody was hurt. But, you know, I just want to get that topic covered because it is very interesting living, um, living so near to the place where this happened that I want to give it some coverage. All right, everyone, thank you so much for hanging in. I know it's a long episode. I just didn't want to go into a third episode as well. But I hope everybody has a safe weekend. If you get a chance, go over and check out the other podcast, Mystifyingly Missing, True Crime and Thought-Provoking Events, um, to 
listen to other cases that you know cover the same or similar topics. All right. I, again, hope everybody has a good weekend or a good week, depending on when you're listening to this. And I will talk to you soon. Bye.